Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we uh, hallowed be your name. God, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Oh God, we are so grateful, God, for sending your son Jesus to save us from our sins. We I say thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit who gave us, oh Lord, as a, as a token, as an inheritance, as a down payment, God, to guide us, oh Lord, in this life, in this difficult life, in the journey of this life. God, we pray for those who are sick, God, who are, can't be with us today, or others who still don't feel safe uh, to be here, God. May you keep them safe, and may you... Help them, O oh Lord, to still be engaged in your word. I pray, O oh Lord, Father, that this morning that we will receive this word from Third John. Uh, not that it comes out of my lips, O oh Lord, but it comes from your heart. I pray, O oh Lord, that uh, this is your words to your people. God, change us, transform us, O oh Lord, to, uh, for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we continue our, our last series. We finish a book today, Third John chapter, just only one chapter, verses nine through fifteen. And so, let me ask you something: Have you ever had something go bad in your refrigerator? Have you ever had something go bad in your refrigerator? How many of you here has the skill to tell when food is spoiled? One of the first hints might be when you open the door; it smells like something has died. Right, uh, but but someone has come up with a list of ways in which you can find out whether our food has gone bad without having to smell it. Any canned goods that have become the size and shape of a softball is spoiled. If you can take a soup out or or a dip out of its container and bounce it on the floor, it's spoiled. Okay, potatoes that are edible generally do not have roots or, or branches. Uh, milk spoiled when it starts to look like yogurt. Yogurt is spoiled when it starts to look like cottage cheese. Cottage cheese is spoiled when it starts looking like regular cheese. Cheddar cheese is spoiled when you think it is blue cheese. That's how you know things are spoiled. So the question is, what do you do with it? If you're wise, you throw it away. That is the right thing to do. But what happens when people in the church starts acting like rotten food? The remaining verses in 3 John tells us an action of one man who was rotten. And he was a bad man as we will see. But if, if you were here with us two Sundays ago, you will remember that in verses 1 through 8, we meet a godly man, a great man named Gaius. What we saw in him is what it looks like to walk in the truth. This morning, we will encounter two men, a Diotrephus, a bad man, and, and Demetrius, a good man. So let's start with Diotrephus. He's a bad, bad man. See, now 3 John now takes this surprising and unexpected turn. In verses 1 through 8, John praises Gaius for four things, right? four areas. His love and his commitment to the truth. So not only did Gaius love the truth, love God, love the truth by obeying it, by showing hospitality and by showing generosity. That's how committed he is to the truth. John also here condemns Diotrephus 
of and also four areas. And my prayer and hope for you this morning that John's stern rebuke here in verses 9 to 15 becomes instructive for us as we become servants of God. If Gaius had the right balance, Diotrephus did not. There, there were polar opposites. Uh, they, they, he was basically Gaius' alter ego at every turn. A man with harmful and, and destructive agenda. And sadly, there are people in the church like Diotrephus. Diotrephus is, was driven by four things. Number one, letter A, he is driven by pride. Look at verse 9a with me. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephus, who likes to put himself first. John wrote a letter that is now lost to us, uh, a letter of praise probably for the missionaries and maybe some instructions for the church, but it was intercepted and, and it was destroyed by this man, Diotrephus. His name is only mentioned here in the New Testament. His name means uh, reared by Zeus, so, so like the Greek god Zeus. So the first thing that Elder John tells us about Diotrephus is that he loves to have first place. That translates in the participle form of the verb from phileos, phileos, love, and protos first. The present tense indicates that this was the constant pattern of his life. The, the present tense indicates that this was his way of living. Pelusia is, is what it, it says here. Diotrephus was, was five things, five S's really, or four S's. He was, he was selfish, he was self-centered, he was self-seeking, he, he was self-obsessed, and he was narcissistic. That's who he was. He, was, he loved being first. He loved being number one. He, he, want, he loves being the captain of the ship, the CEO. He is obsessed to being the center of attention, the king of the hill. The top dog, the, the boss man, the big kahuna, the, the big attraction, the showstopper. He, that's Diotrephus. He had to have the last say in everything in the church. C.S. Lewis says, pride is the sin that made the devil the devil. It made him who is today. The Bible is full of prideful people like King Saul of the first king of Israel. When his son Jonathan had a victory instead of of Jonathan getting the glory, Saul took it from his own son. Herod, in Acts chapter 12, when people were cheering that he sounded like God, he, he loves the praise of men. And, and God, God said in Isaiah that I, I will share my glory with no one. God struck him dead and he was eaten by worms. God does not condone pride like what C.S. Lewis said, pride is the sin that made the devil the devil. It made him who he is today. He, he was, Lucifer was unwilling to be what God had created to be. He was discontent. And because of that, he fell. When he came to the form of a serpent in the garden, he brought the same temptation of pride to Adam and Eve. In John, Genesis 3, 5, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the original sin in Lucifer's heart and in Adam and Eve's heart was a sin of pride, which is the greatest sin of all. And, and pride is, is destructive. When, when you see a, a prideful person, you know that destruction follows that person. In Colossians 1, verse 16 to 18, Paul says... 
But for through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms, rule authority. In the unseen world, everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is what? Called the head of the church, which is the body. He is the beginning and the end. He's supreme over all things. Paul was right. So when he comes to the church, Jesus is never to come in second place. But the office wanted to be first place. He wanted to take a position that, that belongs to Christ. He, he is the first place of everything. Since everything was created through him and, and for him, he is the head of the body. Here, here at Watermark Church, Jesus is our senior pastor. He is the head. He is the star. He is the show. That's who he is here. Not me. All of us are, are mere under-shepherds of him. We're all under-rowers, as, as Paul would say. And, and Diotrephus, he wanted to take the position that belongs only to Christ. When the writer of this epistle is John, and, and John had a problem with pride along with his brother James. Um, one day they, they went to Jesus Christ and, and demanded that they demanded something from him. And they even said to Jesus, they said to him, Jesus, do what we asked you to do. And Jesus said, what do you want me to do? He said, when you get up to heaven, you're going to put me in the right and the left. And then Jesus responded and said, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people? And, and, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them, but among you it will be different? Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, there's tremendous command here for us. It tells us that when God puts us in charge of something, it's a very small thing, we are not to lord it over other people or, or to flaunt our authority. And if we want to be great, Jesus said, we must be a servant to all, to everyone else. And Jesus became our greatest example that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus did not reduce his disciples' desire for greatness here. But he explained that the greatness can only be reached through serving others. To practice serving is to serve without strings attached. All for the glory of God. See, many people serve. But there is a feeling that there's something, there's some strings attached. That it's never free or voluntarily. There's always something Someone's always counting that if you did that for me, I will do that for you. And, and there's this long list of things, of strings that are attached. Why can't we just serve out of a pure heart, as the Bible tells us? Why can't we just serve with no thoughts? Why, why can't we just be a servant to everyone else? The prime mark of leadership is not seeking to be preeminent, but, but seeking to be a servant. That is greatness in the kingdom of God. I heard a lovely story, and I love this story by D.L. Moody, the famed Bible teacher uh, of Moody Bible Church, uh, which is one of the greatest evangelists of our, of our 
time. Late one night after a convention, Dwight was wandering around the halls to see that everything was in order. He turned a corner and came to the guest room where some visiting preachers from England were sleeping. And he noted that outside their door, they had left their pairs of shoes. Spotting some students who were walking by the same time, he said, Do you know what these ministers are doing? And they said they're just following the custom of their country where they always put their shoes out to be cleaned at night. But nevertheless, he asked the students if they would take a piece of chalk and, and write the number of the minister's door to the sole of the shoes and go take them to the room and, and clean them. One of the young men in seminary stuck out his chest and said to Mr. Moody, I did not come to Bible school to clean people's shoes. I came to study the word of God for the ministry. The others agreed with him and said the same. Dwight says very well. You may go back to your rooms. Then Moody himself collected all the shoes, took them to his room, polished them nicely, and put them back into place in the morning. That's what made him great. John the Baptist says in John chapter 3, he says, I must decrease. You guys get that? If, if you want to be an effective servant of God, God said, I must decrease. And, and he, Jesus, must increase. See, the, the issue here was, with Diotrephus was not a doctrinal one, but, but a one of personal pride. I, I don't know who Diotrephus was and, and what drove him to this pride. But, but one thing I know is that it, it helped me assess what place pride have in my life and what pride have in our lives. Because if we allow pride to guide us, uh, our relationship will become difficult in, to everybody that we interact with. Because pride often masquerades as wisdom. As a result, our relationship are marked with, with conflict and, and bitterness and, and dissension. However, humility fosters peace and unity and, and a willingness to serve the Lord and, and one another. There we will find that God faithfully honors humility. He says this often, James chapter 4, verse 6, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, that God said, I will resist the proud. I will resist those who want to take preeminence, and I will only grace those who are humbled. That's the first thing that drove Diotrephus was his pride. Letter B, do not be driven by rebellion. Do not be driven by rebellion or, or by prestige. Diotrephus would not receive, he says here in verse 9b, does not acknowledge our authority. Diotrephus does not receive or, or submit to John's God-given authority. In other words, when he wrote to the church, this rebellious man rejected or snubbed his apostolic authority. As the Corinthians did to Paul. He felt that John had nothing to offer to the church. He, he was telling the people that, that John was old news. And, and that it was time for him to retire or, or to move out of the scene. Simply, John was being kicked out of the curb. This is shocking. Imagine you and I had a chance today to hear the, from the Apostle Paul. Oh, John, sorry. And, and the, the last living disciple of Christ. How many of you would you say that? You don't need to hear anything John has to say. It's absurd. Of course not. We want to hear what John has to say. This is a disciple that Jesus loved. 
This is, this is John who was there from the very beginning, probably the first one who has ever got saved under Jesus' ministry, and he was there till the end. Don't you want to hear from him? See, but the problem is the church met at probably at the office's house. And, and since it met at his house, he felt entitled to have more power or influence. He didn't like God's choice of John as the elder. In his mind, in his heart, it should have been me. It should have been given to me. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 21 says, What sorrow for those who are wise in their own eyes and think themselves so clever. He says, how sad it is for people who think they're so wise and, and they're so intelligent. And, and they think they're so clever. And, and God said, it's so sad. Proverbs 26, verse 12, there's more hope for fools than for people who think they are wise. And I'll come back to that. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27, um, Paul said that God has chosen to use the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And that's where I come in. <laughs> and I said, look at my own life. God, how, what a, how foolish is myself that, that God ever get to choose me to do what I get to do every day. What an honor and approach for me that he chose something so foolish so that he could do something good for his glory. And I and look at church history and, and I look at this. God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. One of the great sins in the church is Entitlement. Uh, let me define entitlement for you. Entitlement is the belief that one is inherently deserving of privileges or special treatment. That's what entitlement is. You see, entitled people do not know they are entitled. That's why it's called the silent killer of the church. It is undetected because it disguises itself in many forms. Entitled people get very angry when they're overlooked for their efforts. They become frustrated when they are treated as equals with people they see are below them. They, they often feel oppressed. As a result, they, they look for a new church, a new friends, a new job. And, and we get into a funk when we are not being praised and adored for what we bring to the table. People get into this funk that they said, you know what, I, I, I don't feel like I'm being praised and adored and, and worshipped for what I bring to the table. But see, according to the gospel, the only thing I deserve is the judgment of God. There's nothing else that I deserve except hell. If there's anything that I deserve, it is hell, it's wrath, it's the full anger of God. That's what I deserve. When, when you really appreciate the gospel, you'll have no entitlement in your heart. Let me share with you five ways how to, um, uh, before I do that, I've been in church ministry long enough to have seen firsthand entitled people. Entitlement is an attitude that slowly creeps in and, and begins to create a culture of everybody wanting their own way. They, they want special treatment because of what they are and, and what they've been given or done for the church. It is the attitude of privilege and, and prestige. And, and this kind of behavior destroys the church. And, and Diotrephus was this man who feels entitled 
Because the church was at his house. Because he has done so much. And yet, we as Christians, if, if we don't break this cycle of entitlement, it will keep us from knowing Christ. Let, let me share with you five ways that we could break entitlement. Uh, develop an attitude of gratitude. Always be thankful. When you're thankful, it's hard to be entitled. And when you're a giver, it's hard to be entitled. And when you recognize that, that at times, more than we would like to admit, that we have this syndrome called entitlement. Have, have you ever confessed to someone, hey, you know, I, I, I want to confess to you my entitlement syndrome. Never. You know why? Because we don't think of ourselves as entitled. Entitled people don't think of themselves as entitled. And it tells us to also cultivate an intimacy with God. When you are intimate with God, you have this right perspective about who you are and who he is. And lastly, evaluate your work ethic. Entitlement goes against the very core of what James too clearly warns us against. Sadly, it's a very thing many members in the church desires to be, including pastors and deacons. Uh, we, there's this part of our hearts that we want to be seen and we want to be known and we want to be appreciated and, and we want to be compensated. It's in our nature to want to be noticed. As a child, we say to our parents, look at me. Look what I've done. That symptoms are, are catastrophic and, and relationships are destroyed by entitlement. Ministries are divided and, and the Great Commission gets overlooked. You know, Tom Rainer, Church Answers, uh, said that one of the number one reason why people exit the church or leave the church is entitlement. Because in their mindset, they have this mindset that I have a picture of a church that it needs to serve me, that I'm entitled to it. And he says, because the church didn't meet that particular need, they will leave and go somewhere else. So that needs, that need will be met. But they will never find it. Because when we have a mindset of entitlement and not a mindset of servanthood, we will always keep looking for somewhere where we can be served and for somewhere where we could be praised and for somewhere where we could be worshipped. And it's a silent killer in the church. In Romans chapter 12, verse 3, Paul says, I give you each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. You guys get that? Don't think you are better than you really are. And let me tell you something. You are not. In this world, you will always find someone better than you, smarter than you. So just get over it. So that's why Paul would say, don't think you are better than you really are. But be honest in your evaluation of yourself. That's the problem that I have. That's the problem that many people have is that we have a false evaluation of ourselves. We don't have a dishonest evaluation of ourselves. We, we measure against each other instead of measuring against ourselves with God. 
And when we measure ourselves with each other, you can always find yourself on top. Because you can always find someone who knows less than you do that you're better off than, any, than somebody else. But if you measure yourself by faith of God has given us, you'll have a different perspective. See, the praise of recognition of others is delightful in our ears because we selfishly love to be praised when we don't get it. It keeps us awake at night. As a result, we often make choices that are driven by the approval or by the praise of man rather than the approval and praise of God. And don't get me wrong, it's not an evil thing to be spoken highly of by others. Christians should strive to be respected and, and in and out of the church. But even if you are recognized by others, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Remember what the Bible says to say about inner character and, and, and to keep our judgment sober. In, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 to 11, the apostle tells us how to handle the praise of men. See, God said, I've given each one of you a gift. That gift comes from me, and there's a variety of it. And God said, use them well. God said, use them well by serving another people. If you have the gift of speaking, speak. Right? If you have the gift of help, help. Do it all with the strength and the energy that God supplies. Right? And if you're going to speak, go speak as if God is speaking through you. And, and the whole goal in this, that in everything you do, the will for bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. Christ. And that's the whole entire goal. That's why we don't need the praise of men. We need the praise of God. Because everything that you have, everything that you are, came from God. In, in John chapter 12, verse 43, Jesus describes the Pharisee, for they love human praise more than the praise of God. Again, I told you, I'll go back from Proverbs 26, verse 12. There is more hope for fools than for people who think they are wise. It's better to have God approve than the world applaud. So if we take a cue from verse 12, we can ask ourselves questions like this. To help us answer whether we are on the path to an unteachable heart. Do we approach others openly to learn from them? Are we seeking to learn from scripture? Are, are we slow to speak and quick to listen? Are we more concerned about what we can teach others before considering what they may teach us? Do we approach struggles with a mindset of learning more about God? Watermark Fellowship Church, we can do far more together when we don't have the spirit of entitlement. When entitlement does not rule our hearts. Diotrephus was driven by pride. He was driven by entitlement. And he's destroying the church. He's killing it. These are the attitudes and the behavior that kills a congregation. And, and sadly, many of us could play a part if we don't put a check in ourselves. See, the opposite of pride is humility. And the opposite of rebellion is submission and obedience. And, and the opposite of entitlement is servanthood. Th those are things that cures the church and helps it thrive, not destroys it. Thirdly, do not be driven by slander, verse 10a. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us and not content with that. John did not fear personal or public confrontation when the situation demanded it. 
He, he tells Gaze that if God wills for him to come, he will confront the Atrophist, beginning with his vicious accusation. See, many of us, are, 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 we love the approval and praise of men that it, it stops us from confronting others. We're, we're more afraid of other people than we're afraid of God. We're afraid what they would think of us if we confront them about the truth. And yet the Bible is very clear in Matthew chapter 18 when he says, go to him, go to her. And he said, if they don't agree, bring somebody else. And if they don't come to an agreement, bring him to the church like they did in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And because the whole entire goal of this is that you may gain a brother, not to destroy the brother, but to gain the brother. Galatians chapter 6, it kind of gives us this, this rules that says, you know, if, if you are a mature individual, you will confront truth. But see, mature people will confront them with gentleness, not to destroy them, but to gain them back. And John was about to do the same thing to the Diotrephus. He says, I love Diotrephus, and I want to confront him with the truth, with the hope that he will repent of his sin and be reconciled to Gaius, and be reconciled to the church, that the church could grow again. But, but Diotrephus was a slanderer. He uses malicious words. In other words, he was, he was trash-talking John. He, he was gossiping about him. The use of the Greek verb comes from a root word that was used for water boiling and tossing off bubbles. And since bubbles are empty and useless, the verb eventually came to mean empty or useless talk. Diotrephus was evil and his accusations were groundless. He had no grounds, no basis. It was vicious and wicked. He lied about John to the other church in the church and would not stop at nothing to get his way. Even if it meant lying. He was a dangerous man to cross. Solomon in Proverbs chapter 6 verse 16 and 19 tells that God hates slanderers. Moses in the Ten Commandments says that God hates when men speak evil of his name. Titus 3.2 says that when, when we speak evil of others, God hates it. See, slander occurs whenever someone says something untrue, a lie about someone else that results intentionally or unintentionally damaging someone's reputation. In Romans 1.30, Paul lists a slanderer as a behavior that describes one who hates God. I just want you to just, if you have your Bibles, just, will you take your Bibles with me and, and open to Ephesians 4 verse 29? I'm just going to... Um, Go through some verses here and, and, and just allow it to speak to us. And um, Starting in verse 29, it says, um, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Let not corrupt talk come out of your mouth, but only what is good, helpful, and, and encouraging. Look at chapter 5, verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Um, go to the book of Colossians, chapter 4. In Colossians, chapter 4, verse 6, uh, let your speech, it says, 
always, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And then Jesus goes on to say in, in, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 to 37, if, if you have your Bible, this is like such crucial as we uh, use a lot of our tongue. Jesus says you must one day that every idle word we will speak, we will give an account on judgment day. In verse 37, the, the words will either acquit you or, or condemn you. If uh, you turn to um, Psalms 141, if you, Psalms 141, verse, verse 3, it says, what a prayer. It's an awesome prayer about our tongue. It says, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Go to Psalms chapter 19. Uh, verse 14. Um, it says Psalms, under ni- Psalms 19 verse 14. 19, 14. I believe. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So when we look at our mouth, is it acceptable in the sight of God? One more, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2. Book of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2. It says... um, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. One day we will be held accountable for every careless word we speak. Either it will acquit us or condemn us. No no wonder Peter says, gives us this imperative command to put away all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Three times in one verse, God says all. All slander. Slander is one of the devil's favorite tools to divide relationship and, and derail the mission of the church. No wonder James chapter 1 says, be slow to speak, quick to hear, and be slow in anger. You, you want to You want to address your anger issue? Two ways. Be slow to speak and quick to hear. God gave us two ears and one mouth. The last thing that Diotrephus was driven by, he was driven by selfishness. He says he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stop those who want to and puts them out of the church. In addition, Diotrephus failed to show hospitality not only to missionaries, but to anyone who needed help. He was a very selfish man. Selfishness is one of the killer of the church. Let me define selfishness with you. 
Selfishness is, is one that only cares about themselves and, and doesn't consider others. I, I love this when it says that if, if a ship is sinking and you refuse to let anyone else into your four-person lifeboat, you're extremely selfish. Selfish people are, by definition, those whose activities are devoted to bringing themselves happiness. Yet, the selfish people are far less likely to be happy than those whose efforts are devoted to making others happy. You know, when I think about the issue, the sin of selfishness, I, I have to ask myself, what, what did I bring to this world? What do I have that I did not receive? People are selfish because they, they want everything for themselves. They're, they're selfish because they don't want to share. They, they don't care. They only care of what makes them happy. Not what others happy, what makes them happy, what makes them fulfilled, what makes them joyful. They only care about themselves. And, and nowhere in their minds they consider the needs of others. It's so outside of them because they're so in love with themselves. And Jesus goes contrary to this because he said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 42, Give to him who asks of you, and from him who wishes to borrow from you, do not turn away. You know what? I was looking at this passage. I was saying, you know, do, do you ever question how come people, God does not bring people to, to you? Why does people don't bring, God does not bring anybody in your life? Because if they ask you and wish to borrow from you, you, you will turn away your heart. So why would God, who is all wise, says, I'm going to bring you someone. He's going to ask you, can you give me because I'm, I'm in need? Can I borrow from you? And, and all you do is turn them away. How could that be? John in his first epistle, uh, chapter 3, verse 16 to 19, I want, you, I want to walk you through a little bit here. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also to give up our lives to our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, shows no compassion, no love, no care, how can God's love be in that person? Impossible, John says. Verse 18, dear children, let us not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth. So we will be confident that when we stand before God, that we are real. See, love expresses itself by providing for others. By meeting the needs of fellow Christians, whether physical, emotional, financial is the most practical demonstration of our profession of faith. James chapter 2 is very clear. When it says, I will show you my faith by my works. Because faith without works is dead. Beware of, of declaring your love with your mouth. We must not, the Bible says, let our, what our lips preaches, may our life support it. The Bible is very clear about hospitality. Romans 12, 1 Peter 4, 9. In, in 1 Peter 4, 9, it says, carefully share your home. 
with those who need a meal or a place to stay. Cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. This is not a suggestion, brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a command. See, I don't have a home. Olivia and I don't own a home. We're just managers of the home that we live in. And everything in it, we're just managers of them too. We're not the owner of anything. Because the Bible is very clear, right? You brought nothing in this world and you will what? Take nothing out. So you and I do not own anything. Everything that we have is given to us by God. And he tells us to manage the things I give you. So our home is not our home. We're just the managers of it. So God says, when I command you, cheerfully share your home. I'm asking you to cheerfully share my home that I gave you, that I'm lending to you. And it's for those who need a meal or a place to stay. Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, he talked about this wedding banquet. And instead, the host, he said, take instead of, I want to read you the whole thing. He says here, when Jesus noticed that all who had come to the dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. When you're invited to the wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat. Then you will be embarrassed and you will have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he will come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. Then you will be honored in front of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humble and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then he turned to his host. When you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives and rich neighbors for they will invite you back and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection, the righteous God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. When was the last time you had anybody over that cannot repay you? Sometimes we only have people over because they've done something good to you. And it's just a repayment. It's never a gift. And God calls that selfishness. Lastly, the office, instead of inviting them this missionary, he throws them out. And those in the church members who were willing to house this missionary was forbidden. And if they did, they will also be kicked out of the church. Um, I've been talking to our state office about, about missionaries who are um, coming back from the field. Um, and there's a family in, uh, I believe, in Oklahoma. Uh, she's 31 weeks pregnant, and, and they have two younger kids, and uh, they need a home. And they need a car. And, uh, and yet, it's a challenge for us as a church to say, I will practice, I will step up to the plate, I will stand, and I will stand on Scripture, and I will, I will obey what God has called me to obey, that I will cheerfully share my home. With those who need a meal or a place to stay. 
And one of the best sermons I've heard in my life is from this year, Steve for g from David Platt. If you have a chance to hear it, hear it. He asks eight questions every pastor needs to answer, every leader needs to answer. And one of them is, do your leadership based on intimidation of others? And Platt said, and I quote, the leaders of the church are the servants of the church. There's no place for entitlement. There's no place for selfishness. We're, we're called to serve. Before we move on, I want to challenge you to examine your character daily by humbly placing your heart before the mirror of the Word of God. Don't, don't fall into the habit of looking into the distorted mirrors of knowledge, success, experience, and recognition. Understand that this is very tempting for us to run to these mirrors, but they are false. View of our, gives us a false view of our character, a false sense of approval. While the Word of God exposes us on our weakness and our flaws and our failures. And I want you to remember the cross freed us from all this. He freed us from this fear of that exposure because the grace of God has made provision for everything the Bible reveals about you. You know, the Bible is so valuable because it's the only where you can find an honest and a truthful evaluation of oneself. I love what John Bunyan said. He said, um, sin will keep you from this book or this book will keep you from sin. That's the atrophist. Man driven by pride, man driven by praise, by recognition, by rebellion. The one who is driven by slander and malicious gossip and useless talk. And man who is driven by selfishness. Let's talk about a good man. Look at verse 12 with me. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony. You know that our testimony is true. John here introduces another one of his spiritual children, Demetrius, who probably brought this letter to Gaius because the first letter that is now lost, destroyed by the Atrophus. Uh, so John compelled to write to Gaius to encourage him. You know how uh, earlier I said that whoever the Atrophus, no one agreed. If nobody agreed with the Atrophus, they get kicked out of church. And Gaius probably one of the elder who got kicked out of the elder board, got kicked out of the church. So, so, he's, so now John heard this and he said, you know, I need to write a letter to my friend, to my son in the faith so he can encourage him. So he's going to send Demetrius. So John writes this letter to this church. And the letter would also serve as a recommendation, actually a threefold witness of praise for uh, Demetrius' reputation towards others. Like Gaius from the truth, the Bible, and from John, the last living apostle of Jesus Christ. And, and said, this man is a good man. He has a good testimony. And everyone knows him. And everyone, everyone knows who he is about. He's a man of character. He's a man of integrity. He's a man that has no hypocrisy. There's no dichotomy in his life. And the question for us is, can that be said of any of us here? A life that is above reproach. Over time, people have, will watch you. And they will find out whether you're a man of your word, a man of integrity, a man of character. They will find out. Proverbs 22, verse 1. If you have to choose between a good reputation and a great wealth, choose a good reputation. Van Franklin said, it takes a good deed to build a good reputation and only one bad one to lose it. Abraham Lincoln, character is like a tree and reputation is like a shadow. The shadow is what we think of it. The tree is the real thing. So how important is your character? Your character, more than anything else, will impact how much you accomplish in this life. It is more important than your talent, than your education, than your background, than your network of friends. 
It determines everything about you. Your character determines whether you are worth knowing. It will determine how you will respond to life success and in the inevitable storms of life. How many of you here have heard the phrase, time will tell, meaning sooner or later, something will become known or be revealed. Sooner or later, people will find out who you really are. What would they really see? Will they see someone like Gaius and, or, or Demetrius or they will see someone like Diotrephus? Numbers 33 verse 20, and be sure your sin will find you out. This man is a good of character. So he carries this letter in verse 11. And he tells Gaius, oh, he tells Demetrius, tell Gaius to not imitate evil, but imitate good. Because whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. John tells us there are really only two kinds of people. Whoever, whoever does good, a giver, is from God. And whoever does evil, a taker who has not seen God, the unsaved. And the question for us all here is, which one are you? This is the beauty of the gospel because the beauty of the gospel says that if you're not, I want to tell you that God is holy and, and you are not and I am not, but Jesus lived this perfect life and died on the cross and he was raised on the third day. Third day. And, and for those who would turn from their sin and trust him for salvation will receive this gift of eternal life. So the question becomes, are you a giver? Are you from God or are you a taker not from God? And, and this passage does not leave us in room. It tells us there has to be a clear evidence that one belongs to God and one belongs to the evil one. The one be, that one has to give evidence that one is found or one is still lost. And yet, sadly, the church are accused of hypocrisy and, and rightfully so. Because there's a bunch of people in the church that testifies that I am good. But yet, they're not a giver. They're only a taker. And they make it worse for every one of us who wants to be good and who wants to be a giver. Moreover, John tells Demetrius to tell Gaius to imitate good. Present imperative, calling for continuous action. Gaius is to keep on loving and obeying and being hospitable and generous to all. Don't give up. Don't grow weary on doing good, but in due time, you will reap if you do not faint. Take every opportunity, Paul says, to do good. Paul, in, in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, who is really our ultimate example, who will never fail us. However, we, we need earthly, everyday examples to imitate. And, and my challenge for you is, will you be one of them? See, the, the point becomes you can only lead by following. Remember in, in verse 5 and 6, John talked about the strangers, the missionaries who give testimonies about Gaius. Demetrius was, was probably a missionary and, and was listening to John as he praises this man Gaius, how he walked in the truth. See, people may not like you. They may not want to resemble you. But people cannot help seeing what sort of man or woman you are. There is no mistake about your genuine goodness. And, and my question for you is, and to our youth leaders, to any leaders here, can I point my son, can I point my daughters to you and say, be like him, be like her? And here's a bigger question. Could you point your children to me and say, follow him? That is the challenge be before us today. 
If we're going to make an impact in this world, we have to be imitators of Christ. A few weeks ago, I shared with you from 1 Corinthians 4 about spiritual parenting from the life of Paul to the Corinthians in verse 17. He tells them that he is sending Timothy to show them the truth of how to walk in it. He tells them that Timothy will represent me as if I were there because he is just like me in speech and life in love in purity and in faith. He, Paul said, listen to him. Here in 3 John, he shows us a similar pattern of spiritual parenting and it also can send Demetrius to represent him as he was there, if he was there. John says, for now, I'm sending Demetrius to you, and he will be a source of encouragement to you, Gaius, and to the church. He will love you, and he will care for you. Verse 2, Gaius was probably suffering something emotional that Paul prayed for him, that his health will be good. Maybe from a conflict with Diotrephus, who most likely kicked him out of the elder board and maybe even out of the church because he would not kowtow to him. He would not bow down and, and worship him. To the Philippians, Paul in chapter 2 says, Meanwhile, I thought I should send you Epaphroditus back to you. He's a true believer, a brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, and he was your messenger to help me in my need. I'm sending him because he has been longing to see you. He was very distressed that you heard he was ill, and he certainly was ill. In fact, he almost died, but God had mercy on him and also on me so that I would not have sorrow after another so I am all more anxious to send him back to you, for I know you will be glad to see him, and then I will not be so worried about you. Welcome him with a Christian love and with great joy and give him the honor the people like him deserve. For he risked his life for the work of Christ, and he was to the point of death while doing for me what you couldn't do for, from far away. And, and here's my point. Do you have someone like Timothy? Do, do you have someone like Titus? Do you have someone like Epaphroditus? Do you have someone like Epaphras? Do you have someone like Demetrius? Do you have someone like Gaius in your life that you can just say, go for me? Do you have someone in your life that say, hey, go, go and serve someone, go and love someone? And that's why spiritual parenting is so key. That's why discipleship is so key. Because we need men and women whom I can point our kids to, our youth to, our young marriage to, and our married couples. And say, go live like him. Go be like her. Strive to be such example. And my last morning is be careful whom you watch and be mindful of who watches you. Verse 13 and 14. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and, and we'll talk face to face. Jo John closes his epistle with an expression of hope that they will meet, that he will meet uh, with Gaius real soon, uh, God willing. He then tells Gaius that his preference is to talk to him personally than with another letter. His desire is to want to see him face to face. He misses Gaius. If you're going to say something important or in a disagreement with someone, please don't text. Because a lot of things gets lost in translation, doesn't it? Towards the text. If you can get mad, get mad in person. Okay? Because you text it, there is not enough vocabulary that is good. <laughs> Call them. Set up a face-to-face -face meeting. It's better. Verse 15. Peace be to you. The friends greet you, greet the friends each by name. John writes, peace be with you, be to you. I'm sure he wished that peace could pervade in the church. Then he adds, the friends greet you, which testifies that the real, that, uh, imagine, I want you to see the implication here is that Gaius and John had mutual friends that they knew well. And he said, greet the friends. I love this by name. <laughs> um, Paul in Romans 16 listed all his friends who labored with him. 
Remember, John is the last apostle who had an intimate relation with our Lord, who lived into his 90s, still knew the names of the people in his life, and closes out his letter by affirming how important friendship is, how important fellowship is, and how important peace is in the church. As we finish the 64th book of the Bible, I, I see three great truths. First principle, verse 3, know the truth and walk in it. Know the truth and walk in it. Second principle, be hospitable to others who preach the truth. Third principle, verse 11, pattern your life after godly examples. Then there will be peace in the church and God will be honored and glorified in his church. Lord, my church, I, I want to challenge you to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Let us honor God by walking in the truth of his word. Let's love the truth. Let's walk in the truth. Let's be committed to the truth. Pray with me. Father, I pray and I just want to thank you, Lord, for being so gracious that you could have uh, taken us home. And, but you have tremendous patience that you want to change us and conform us to the image of your son, Jesus God, I just want to just take this time to confess our own pride and our lack of humility, God, and a lack of putting others' interests before us and a lack of taking interest in somebody else's lives. God, I don't want to confess, oh Lord, not just our pride, oh Lord, but our rebellion, our lack of submission to authority, God. Not only, Lord, authority in your word, but authority in, in the people God has placed over us and and God, I even confess, oh Lord, at times where we um, we're entitled, that we think we deserve God something, and that we need special privileges. God, we even confess, oh Lord, that we love the praise and applauds of men. God, we pray for our mouth. God, we confess our mouth, our dirty, filthy mouth. God, that not. Not a lot of good sometimes comes out of it. God, our prayer, like the psalmist says, Lord, guard what comes out of our lips. God, I, I, I pray, God, that, that our words will be few. Oh, God, I, I pray, lastly, God, that we become generous people, God, and and not only are we waiting, oh Lord, for someone to ask, but we will actually be the one offering. And God, uh, please take our heart and, and take whatever strings that is attached to our giving and to our serving and, and transform it to Jesus, oh Lord, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give himself a ransom for many. And Lord, we thank you for the life of Gaius, his love for the truth and his commitment to the truth shown by his hospitality and his generosity, and, and for Demetrius, O oh Lord, you had such a good reputation among everyone who live a life of above reproach. So, Lord, thank you for the book of Third John, how helpful it is, instructive it is, O oh Lord, for us as we navigate through life's sins and life's struggles, and, and because, Lord, we just want to be like you. So, so Father, I pray that uh, make us, O oh Lord, a servant. Make us look like you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.